and welcome to Forest of the Future, the series where we look into how innovation in FSC can help save our forests. We all know that forests play a key role in combating climate change and the biodiversity crisis that we're facing. In this series, we explore how innovation, especially within tech tools, but also more broadly, can help us protect our forests and support the mission of FSC, which is to ensure responsible management of our forests worldwide. Today we're going to talk about human rights, and more specifically about the core ILO conventions. If you don't know what ILO stands for, don't worry about it, most of us don't. ILO is the International Labour Organization, established under the United Nations, or UN, as you likely mostly know them as. In 1998, at their global summit in Copenhagen, they accepted the fundamental principles and rights at work, what is also called the core conventions. The rights cover child labor, forced labor, discrimination, and freedom of association and collective bargain rights. And why are we going to dive into these again? Well, because FSC this September 1st, 2021, made it obligatory for all FSC certified companies around the world to ensure and prove that they adhere to the conventions. This left me with a series of questions. What does that mean more specifically? What do companies need to do to comply? How do they prove compliance? And why does it matter so much when most of the world have good legislation in place on these topics? Luckily, I have really good colleagues to point all of these questions towards. So I invited Vicky Tran and William Cook to join me online to explain it all to me. The two of them have had the pleasure of figuring out how to implement the conventions across FSC, and I'm now leading up the global rollout in close companion, of course, with our national and regional offices around the globe. But enough introduction. Let's hear from the two of them. Hi, William and Vicky, and welcome to the podcast. I will start with my first question over to you, William, because many of us, maybe including myself, potentially does not really know what the core ILO conventions are or didn't know before this podcast. So could you let us know what is that in words that we can all understand? Sure. Thanks, Loa. To put it as simply as possible without spending too much time going into the details of what the ILO conventions specifically say, overall, it's just about providing a floor, a minimum assurance about workers' rights. So it includes things like prevention of child labor. It includes things like making sure that workers have the right to form work groups, join labor unions, organizations like that. So overall, the purpose of the ILO is just to make sure that the worst forms of worker exploitation aren't happening. Mm -hmm. And it's an international thing, right? That's right. It's a multinational set of statements, of rules that are ratified at a national level. There are some countries around the world that have chosen not to ratify it because those rules are already enshrined in national law. Okay. So... Vicky, this is where I'd like to bring you in because FSC is one third social rights. Mm -hmm. Don't we already have the core ILO implemented in FSC? We do have a policy of association where companies must commit to, and it mm -hmm. does cover the ILO fundamental principles and rights at work. 
for mm-hmm. all workers. However, what is different is now we have them as auditable requirements under the FSC core labor requirements. Is this the first time ever that FSC implements social criteria in any standard? No, we do have them in the forest management standard, but however, in the chain of custody standard, this will be a first. Wow. And how many companies are we talking about here worldwide? We are looking at nearly 50,000 chain of custody certificates. And each of those can then be comprised of a lot of companies some of them several hundred. So we're talking yeah. thousands of companies. Yes. What's the change that we're facing them with here? What are we asking them to do? Well, we are asking certificate holders to demonstrate that they do not use child or forced labor within their operations mm-hmm. and to ensure that there is no discrimination in employment and occupation. So this means there's no indication that they discriminate within their recruitment or hiring policies. And in addition, they have to demonstrate that they respect freedom of association and the effective right to collective bargaining. Okay, so pretty fundamental things when you come from our side of the globe. When I talk to companies about this, their gut instinct is, oh, that will be really difficult to implement in our entire supply chain. But is that what we're asking them to do, to go through their entire supply chain? Not at all. The core labor requirements applies to their FSC certificate, and this includes their subcontractors, but it doesn't apply to their suppliers. Unless, of course, if their suppliers are FSC certified, then they will need to demonstrate their own conformity to the FSC core labor requirements. Okay, so what you're saying is that for each of the certified companies, they have to get their own house in order, so to speak. They have to implement this for themselves and be audited for themselves, and then each link is responsible for their own company. Correct. How are we going to go about this? I mean, some of the requirements are much easier to verify than others. It's pretty simple to have a rule that say, do you employ children or don't you? But But how do we verify the trickier ones like discrimination? Well, discrimination within employment and occupation can be direct or indirect. But when you see it, you will know it. And Mm -hmm. we need to take into consideration the sector and industry that the organization operates in. And we know in certain sectors, they have more traditionally male employees Mm -hmm. and Women may not apply for these roles, even though the organisation open job openings that do not discriminate against female applicants. So it's up to the certificate holder to demonstrate that they did not directly or indirectly discriminate against female applicants. And the selection and recruitment of employees should be based on their qualifications, their skills and their experience. But how would we go about that? What are we expecting companies to show there? Well, for example, I guess if we look at job advertisements, you can see it in the wording, I would say. In Germany, there is a requirement for job ads to specify that the role is open to all genders, male, female, and diverse. So that's one way to demonstrate that you have an inclusive job opening that you don't specify 
certain personal characteristics that is desired in a position since it should be based on the qualifications and skills of the applicant Mm -hmm. and not whether if they're a union member or not or if they're a certain gender or they adhere to a particular religion. And how much of this are we expecting? Like you say, your example is in Germany, we have a law that says you have to insert this sentence when you place a job advertisement. How do we actually in FSC handle that? Not all countries will have the same level of requirements or legislation and the same enforcement of legislation. How do we make sure that the level of requirements that we have and the enforcement of requirements that we have is similar on a global level? Well, we all know that some countries have similar laws that cover the FSC core labour requirements and some don't. And maybe in some of those countries, even though they have those laws, they may not be enforced to a high level of rigour. So Mm -hmm. in regards to the FSC core labour requirements, it does not matter if a certificate holder is located in a country where there's laws that cover them or not. As a certificate holder, they are still responsible for demonstrating conformity with the core labour requirements. And of course, this is easier if the law is actually enforced since it could be used as a mechanism or a tool to demonstrate conformity. For example, if they were inspected annually by a government inspector in regards to child or forced labour and mm-hmm. they are issued a report or a certificate after this, they can use this as a way to demonstrate their conformity to a number of requirements within their self-assessment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in those countries where we do have that kind of, of authority-based enforcement of, of le- legislation, for example, you can use that as documentation. If you're then from a country or operating in a country where that does not exist, we will have another system set up for you to verify this or to show compliance for this on your own. Yes, so the certificate holder will need to have policies or procedures in place or demonstrate due diligence in ensuring that either they do not have child labour and have no indication of forced labour at all. William, can I just bring you back in because I'd like to dive a bit deeper into this. I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of companies here that has to do things a bit differently than they used to. What is the value added for our certificate holders in doing this? Why does it matter? So that that's kind of a, a, a tricky question to answer because of the broad spectrum of certificate holders that exist. We mm. have large companies, multinational, cross-country, all sorts of and right down to small local family businesses, things like that. So for a lot of people, not a lot will change. For a lot of certificate holders, they're not going to have to change very much. As has been hinted at, there's most organizations are already doing what needs to be done in order to prevent sort of these worst forms of labor exploitation. Mm-hmm. But what they're doing in the past has been behind the scenes. And this is the chance or this is the opportunity for the the work that these organizations 
do in order to ensure that workers are not exploited, to make sure that they're not employing children in roles that are unbefitting of having children do them. This is their opportunity for that to become firmly linked to their certificate. So for big organizations, this is like social audit reporting, these sorts of Mm -hmm. things. It it now has become enshrined in their certificate that if they receive their chain of custody certificate, they have applied the FSC core labor requirements. And therefore, that means that they can also make claim to meeting the ILO conventions. So it has an international value for these sorts of organizations. Um, And in principle, the change that's meant to be brought about by these new requirements is an aspirational hope that there will be a sort of a global level elevation or a rising of the tide of the treatment of workers where the floor will go up everywhere to ensure that these worst forms of exploitation aren't being practiced. Isn't it also a part of this that when you buy an FSC certified product, you actually expect for these kind of things to be in place? Certainly. So if we look at it from the perspective of someone who is buying a a good with the FSC label on it, there's certainly a value there to be more certain that that when you're buying it, that it's not just beneficial for the environment. It's not just the best option in terms of making sure forests stay intact and keep growing, those sorts of things, good forest practice. There's also Mm -hmm. a value that when you're buying an FSC labeled product, that there's now some assurance that there's also no exploitation of the human element in the supply chain. So Mm -hmm. certainly there's value there for consumers, certainly. Mm -hmm. Can we actually just go back and and talk a bit about what's the origin of this requirement? Where does it come from? Is it something that the secretary just figured out that we wanted to implement or who's actually been asking us to implement this? This was brought to us from our membership. Most of the big changes that are implemented in our normative requirements are brought about because the membership, which represents a broad spectrum of interests from around the world, these members come up with propositions about how our standards and procedures and how FSC should proceed in order to achieve certain goals. And this was one of those goals, is that we should incorporate social worker rights concerns into our chain of custody certificates. Because as Mm -hmm. you said, it was already included in our forced management and there have been elements of worker safety and worker health in our requirements, but we're still missing these fundamental workers' rights. So this was something that came about driven by members Mm -hmm. and then just implemented by the FSC Secretariat with a working group representing various stakeholders and experts to come up with a set of rules that, of course, very strongly relates to the ILO core convention. So an already established set of agreements and statements about how the world should be in order to improve the well-being of workers globally. Yeah, because I guess what we're saying here is that it's basically an international set of requirements that a lot of countries have ratified, but that just aren't 
globally implemented and certainly are not globally audited upon. And that's the big benefit that we're adding here. Vicky, if I can come back to you, because I'd like to get tangible for all of the companies out there listening or all of the FSC staff helping companies out there. Um, if I was an FSC certified company and I am facing an audit, what should I do and by when? And can I get any help anywhere? What's the change I have to face? Well, the standard comes into effect on the 1st of September. And mm -hmm. as a certificate holder, they are required to develop policy statements which cover the core labour requirements and in addition to that, complete their self-assessment. Mm -hmm. They will need to submit their self-assessment to their certification body prior to their audit. This will give mm -hmm. the auditor enough time to review the self-assessment and also plan for the on-site audit. And depending on the details of the self-assessment, it will inform the auditor if they need to look into an aspect much deeper than what is in there already. And in regards to support or assistance for certificate holders, they can contact their certification body directly mm -hmm. or the national office within their country or regional office. Also, we have developed a number of resources which are available on our Chain of Custody webpage. We do have several webinars on the core labour requirements. We have a introduction webinar which covers just the bare basics and a number of technical webinars where we go through each of the requirements one by one and looking at a completed self-assessment. Mm -hmm. And this self-assessment, is it's a table? It says, what is it? How do you do a self-assessment? The self-assessment is available as an annex under the new version of the standard. And it has a number of prompting questions which ask the certificate holder to explain and describe how they know they comply with each core labour requirement. And mm -hmm. it requires them to also include additional evidence, documentary or record as evidence and list them there that they mm -hmm. will rely on to demonstrate their conformity. There is a requirement for them to also list any laws that may impact or potentially impact their conformity in regards to the requirements as well. So, for example, there may be in certain countries where the law limits the choice of union you're able to join. So this may limit the workers' rights to freedom of association and the certificate holders will still need to demonstrate their conformity to our requirements, but also comply with the laws. So they need to provide mechanisms for workers to also have freedom of association and representation, even though they're limited by the law. How would you go about that as a company? In certain countries where the law does limit the choice of unions, if the workers want to organise into a workers' committee, the certificate holder must allow that. And of course, if workers don't want to do that, that is fine. Mm -hmm. But that needs to be a alternative mechanism or alternative option for workers to organise and be represented.
But would that mean that if you're then FSC certified and you are operating in one of these countries where you have to join a certain union and you then have to give your employees the right to gather on their own, would you then be required as a company to go against the law in that particular country? Not at all. We don't ask certificate holders to go against the laws within their country. <laughs> That's what I didn't understand. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> they need to strike that balance of complying with their local or national laws that also conform to our requirements as well. Mm-hmm. And that balance may not always be clear and straightforward, but there's certain mechanisms and ways to, to do that. Okay. And I guess this is also where the national offices of FSC comes in terms of identifying the national relevant legislation and helping strike that balance. Or is this mm-hmm. entirely up to the certification bodies? It would definitely need to be done in support of the national office because we as a secretariat, we don't know the laws in every single country. And mm-hmm. so it will definitely need to be something that a certificate holder will need to liaise with their national office. And if the national office needs a bit more assistance, they can always contact us directly as mm-hmm. well. William, I'd like, I'd like to bring you back in because I think most can see the value of this and can see what we're adding. But in the context examples that we've given here is also really large companies. But the reality is that a lot of the companies that are FSC certified are really small companies down to one, two, three employees. How much scale do we have in the complexity that we require? I mean, if you are just a one, two person shop, you are not likely to have written down procedures and big self-assessments and procedures for how you hire you perhaps you didn't ever hire anyone because you just hired your brother-in-law that was available at the time and therefore you don't have a hiring procedure how do we go about that this is a very important point because what you've hit on is it's exactly right is that the formality of having written procedures or things like that is not a requirement the important thing is that you are fulfilling the core labor requirements. Having a procedure is simply something that makes it easier. So mm-hmm. when we're talking when we're talking about small operations, the requirements don't demand that you have a written procedure about how you ensure that people are not working underaged or something like that. It's extremely scalable. The way that it's written is meant to be very scalable. Mm-hmm. Small operations might actually find it more easy to demonstrate that they're not violating these principles, that they're not breaking the rules. A family business could demonstrate to an auditor, could write in their self-assessment, this is a family business, only my immediate family works for us. I know that they're all above the age of 14 and my children go to school and work after in light work. So. Mm-hmm. The self-assessment can be ri- is meant to be written as a way to help the auditor know what questions to ask and what things to look into when they do their audit. So for a small company, let's say one or two people, it might even be easier to demonstrate, let's just choose at random, the issue of child labor. Mm-hmm. Let's say, yes, I employ my children after school. Well, I can demonstrate that because my children are going to school, I have report cards or I have uh, whatever the yearly enrollment papers are, that sort of thing. And what's more 
for bigger organizations, it's a necessity that they will already have more complex chains of proof in place, like, as you say, some written procedures. But they are not required. A written procedure is not a requirement, especially, as you pointed out, when the scale of the organization makes it senseless. It doesn't make mm -hmm. any sense to have a written procedure if it's just me and my brother-in-law, or if it's just my immediate family working on a, a small operation. It doesn't make any mm -hmm. sense for that. So the important thing is to be able to demonstrate in some way to an auditor that you're meeting these requirements. It doesn't necessarily have to be something as formalized as a written procedure, but the key is you do have to be able to demonstrate it in some way. Mm -hmm. And the key to that demonstration is then filling out the self-assessment. That's, I would say, the first step, because the goal of that self-assessment is to be able to help your auditor know what question do I need to ask first? What sort of evidence? Because, for example, in the self-assessment, I might write down, we don't have any hiring procedures because we have no intention of ever hiring anyone. Okay, that's fair enough. Then the auditor might be able to formulate a particular line of inquiry to make sure that he's not seeing a growth in the company that would necessitate hiring someone soon or something like that. These are sort of the things that uh, should be included in the self-assessment to help the auditor gauge what questions and what lines of inquiry they need to pursue. So Wiki, if I go back to you, it sounds like a lot of this would be up to the auditor to evaluate when prepping for the audit and, and after the audit. And I know that this is just under implementation. We are still to see the first audits go through with these new requirements because the requirements as such are so fresh. They've only just been implemented. So, but what are we asking the auditors and the certification bodies to do? Should they be going through every single document that you may point to in your self-assessment or is it a risk based thing where you sample where you think there might be something to look into? Definitely not. It is a risk-based assessment, but it's really dependent on the self-assessment. So depending on how much detail they put into the self-assessment themselves, it may require an auditor to go through much more detail on site, conduct interviews with workers, look at documentations and records in a much deeper level. So it just really depends on the detail that is included within the self-assessment. And it's also very context-specific too. So there's certain countries where risk of forced labour may actually be higher in certain sectors and mm -hmm. may not even exist in certain sectors. So you have to take a lot of different contexts and sectors into consideration. Will we be providing like a framework for the auditors to make sure that this is implemented in a... Well, it is up to the certification bodies to develop their own framework for assessing the FSC core labor requirements. Okay. If I can How add we... something to that point. Yes, please do. We have to remember that the principle of this way of certification is to ensure absolute independence of the auditors is to make mm -hmm. sure that they're not being manipulated or guided by some 
relationship with the standard setters themselves. So it's important to remember that that independence is actually crucial to guaranteeing the strength and legitimacy of the certification process. FSC is, however, working with both the accreditation body and on calibration methodologies to ensure that there's some parity between auditors, between auditing firms, between certification bodies around the globe. Mm -hmm. But it's important to remember that it is not FSC's main purpose to, let's say, police these certification bodies, these auditors. This is, in fact, why there's an independent accreditation firm to make sure that it's not the standard setters who are also making sure that the audits are being done in a particular way. And that's fundamental to this form of certification. Mm -hmm. So basically what you're saying is that it would be Accreditation Services International ASI in normal FSE lingo that would handle the calibration and make sure that the requirements are evenly implemented across the globe, across different certification bodies. I think it's a, it's an easy way out to, to hand off the ball to someone who's not in the conversation right now. <laughs> but in principle, uh, it is ASI's task to ensure that the rules of auditing are being applied globally in an equitable fashion. Mm-hmm. So in short, yes, but the long form, yes, with some caveats. And some support from us and blah, blah, and blah. And some support okay. from us. Yeah. Okay. Vicky, one thing that I was wondering, I go to a lot of companies in my day-to-day job and have been part of preparing a lot of companies for certification. And one thing that's quite common is that all of these companies have a lot of social certifications already in place. A lot of them will have, for example, a BSCI audit or an SA8000 audit or different kind of audits, depending on where they are on the globe. What about those companies? Would they need to do the FSC self-assessment on top of those social audits and be audited as for FSC? Or are they able to use these other certificates that they already have to show compliance? They still need to demonstrate conformity with the FSC core labour requirements and still complete the self-assessment, regardless if they are certified against another social certification scheme or not. However, mm-hmm. at the moment, uh, we are developing a benchmarking system to look at other social certification schemes out there and comparing them with our requirements. And it is in future that we do hope that once we have completed this process and developed a list of schemes that we consider as equivalent to our mm-hmm. requirements, that this will exempt certificate holders from the audit of the FSC core labour requirements. So this is coming in the future and still in development. Just to add on to what Vicky said, because it's absolutely true that she's currently, she and our team are currently working on trying to create a list of, let's say, equivalent social certification schemes. Certificate holders should also remember that just because they don't have that list now doesn't mean that work is for nothing. All the Mm -hmm. evidence that they gathered to achieve that certification, you can apply directly into the FSC chain of custody certification process. You don't Mm -hmm. have to necessarily 
wait for that list, you can already say, well, we already have this certificate and we've analyzed it and it seems like it covers a lot of the requirements. So let's demonstrate the evidence that we gathered for this other scheme and we'll show it to our auditor. And the auditor can say, oh, yes, I see these are equivalent. Yes, you've already done this. The evidence you gathered for the previous uh, social certification scheme applies to this and this requirement within the core labor requirements. Or they might say, well, this almost gets us there. Let's do a little bit more investigation of our own. So mm -hmm. it's not like this work or these other certification methodologies aren't valuable. It's not like the work that certificate holders have done in the past goes to waste. They just need to be then willing to demonstrate the same evidence that they used already. So it's mm -hmm. not like this work disappears. It's still there even without this official list of equivalent certification schemes. And I guess you would also be able to say, well, we've actually already been audited. Here's the audit report with its findings and use that as a reference point in your self-assessment. Yeah, I mean, that would certainly be like a starting point because, of course, the auditor needs the actual evidence itself. The, an audit report doesn't provide the detail that an FSC auditor would prefer, but it certainly would be a starting point where you can say, we have been certified by this, we have attached the report. That's certainly a starting point from which the auditor can say, okay, I see in the audit report they say X, Y, and Z. What did you show them mm -hmm. for them to reach the conclusion of X, Y, and Z? Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And also, I think, very valuable for a lot of the certificate holders that we're thinking along these lines and trying to optimize work. Last question for the both of you. If I come back to you in three years' time, what change do you hope that we will have made with these new requirements? both, I guess, in the FSC system, but also in the wider world. Vicky, if I start with you. I would definitely like to see a increase of awareness amongst consumers in regards to workers' rights and workers' exploitation in the things that we consume. And to see consumers demanding more transparency in, in supply chains as well, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm quite sure that will happen regardless. William? What do you hope to? Yeah, my, my wish is perhaps a bit um, pie in the sky, as we say, <laughs> a bit aspirational, because I know that these sorts of things are very hard to measure and track properly. But in a perfect world, in a better world, perhaps, I would very much like to see a, an actual measurable, demonstrable drop in these worst forms of worker exploitation in the timber and timber adjacent industries, both mm -hmm. within FSC, but hopefully also at a global level where the rising tide has lifted all boats together. That would be very lovely. Also very tricky, you're right, in, in trying to get those data points, but it's a good dream to have, I think, and something that we definitely can try to make a mark on. Thank you both of you for humoring me and participating in this interview and taking time in quite busy schedules under the last days of implementation before we launch the requirement. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. That's it. I do hope that Wiki and William are right, that we, with the implementation of these requirements, will help elevate the global level of implementation of workers' rights just a little bit and help us get rid of forced labor, child labor, 
and ensure that everyone, everywhere, has freedom of association and collective bargain rights. If you want to get in touch with us or follow our work, I strongly encourage you to join our LinkedIn group. It's called FSC Digital Innovations and it's open for everyone. You can also always get in touch with me on digitalinput at fsc.org. I am Loa Worm and this was Forest for the Future.